Hi, it's Fraser Myers here, Deputy Editor of Spiked. If you're looking to get into journalism and you're a fan of Spiked's articles, features, or podcasts like this one, then you have to apply to Spiked's internship program. We're looking for hardworking, enthusiastic people who want to help Spiked spread our pro-freedom, pro-democracy message. If successful, you'll join us for a six-month paid placement in our London offices. Spiked interns can expect to learn or develop a whole range of skills from writing and copy editing to social media and audiovisual content creation. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Applications close on Monday, the 20th of June, so don't delay. Go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. The average response time of police in, in America is 11 minutes. If the rapist is there, you can be raped in 11 minutes. And the reality is, the Second Amendment is about not outsourcing your protection to the government. When government becomes end-all, be-all, you have to do what we say. So the people that are saying, you know, over there in London and places, if they're like, yo, well, why would you need a gun? I would ask them, I didn't know that you guys trusted your government so much here. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Marj Torre. Marj is an American activist, speaker and rapper. He is the founder of the non-profit educational organisation Black Guns Matter. BGM advocates for the right to bear arms and and promotes responsible gun ownership in black and urban communities in the US. Marge is an active libertarian, and alongside defending Second Amendment rights, he also advocates for criminal justice reform, improvements in education, and conflict resolution as a better alternative than gun control. So Marge, I want to talk to you about Black Guns Matter, the Second Amendment, the problem with gun control, all that good stuff that you've been campaigning on and speaking about for a long time. Uh, but to begin with, I want to ask you about something that's pretty horrible, but the whole world's talking about it, which is the Rob Elementary massacre at Uvalde in Texas. It would almost be remiss of me not just to get this in there and to put to you some of the arguments that are made, which you will be uh, very, very familiar with. They're made by liberals in the United States and particularly by liberals in Europe who look at America with absolute horror. And, and the one thing they say is, if you have access to guns, you will have events like this. This is what happens when you have uh, the right to, to bear arms. So how do you respond to those kinds of arguments in the wake of tragedies like this, when, when people say to you, listen, guns are the problem here, and you've got to stop campaigning for the right to own them? There's a few different things that are said there. I don't think that one particular answer is the absolute answer. If I said that more guns by itself was the answer, that I would be wrong. Just like as they're saying, the removal of firearms from safe and responsible owners is the answer. Mm -hmm. They're wrong. I think that what happens is instead of getting into a debate about which side is right, because that's what a lot of times it boils down to. A lot of these people don't care about actually protecting the children. They care about their political position. Mm. They want to be right. They want to continue to get the funding. Some people don't even care about their political position. They want to continue to get funding from anti-gun politicians or anti-gun billionaires. So they say all of the right things. Same as some people on the right, you know, that identifies the right may say, and maybe less than on the left, but it said that, you know, well, they don't even want to have the conversation because they believe that the conversation is not going to happen in good faith. Mm. It's not going to be a real like, hey, let's genuinely try to solve this problem. Um, so when they say that, I usually try to go, if they'll allow me, I, allow, I try to go somewhere in the, in the nuanced area. And we do that by data. We do that with empathy. We do that with a genuine want to protect life before mm. anything else. 
And I'm pretty sure that most of those people that have anti-gun arguments that don't generally train or use firearms and know anything about ballistics or terminal ballistics or um, shooting or training or any of that stuff, I still know that they generally just want the trauma to stop. I have to believe that. I, I, I can't believe that every single person that thinks they're anti-gun doesn't care about babies. You know, just like I can't believe that pro-gun people just don't care about the death. So if they're having a will, a genuinely, and again, this is a big uh, presumption. My assumption and presumption would be that that person is genuinely trying to ask questions to come up with an answer and not just pandering to their political viewpoint. If that is the case, we go to the numbers because we've already established empathy. I know that you care about saving life and you know that I care about saving life. So we got empathy out of the way, which should always be the first step. Second, we go to the data, which are the facts. The fact of the matter is most um, mass shooters under the definition of mass shooting, which is four or more people shot seemingly unrelated in the scenario, most mass shooters are on psychotropic meds in America. When you're talking about America and in a bigger context, the world, um, some of the drugs that we have in America are banned in a lot of other countries. Some of the, a lot of the foods that with food, Franken foods that are in or chemicals that are in our foods, they're banned in a lot of different countries. Now I'm not a fan of banning anything, but I'm just talking about the brass tacks of yeah a more holistic approach. So we got to look at the fact that these guys are on psychotropic meds by and large. We got to look at the fact that they go to gun-free zones where there's going to be less people to return fire. The guy in Buffalo literally wrote that in the so-called manifesto. Mm. We have to look at gun-free zones since 1990 when they were created by President Joe Biden, then Senator. He co-authored that bill. And in 1991, it became law. Since then, over 90% of mass shootings are in gun-free zones. We have to look at what is the mentality of a person that wants to do something like this? How can we get rid of the predictability of the people on site so it makes it more difficult for that deranged person to do that? If I know that there's one person with a firearm and I'm coming to do carnage, that's the first person I'm going to shoot, hmm. like the kid did in Buffalo. Um, it wasn't the first person he shot, but that's who's going to be targeted. But usually that's what happens in a robbery. We point the gun or shoot the person with the firearm. That's the hard target that we have to neutralize first. You remove some of that predictability by doing things like allowing teachers, if we're talking about a school, allowing a teacher that wants to train to get the training that they need with opera, uh, organizations like Faster Saves Lives over in Ohio, they train educators on safe and responsible firearms ownership training, and they work together to keep their school safe. That means that person that may attempt to try to shoot up a school, they don't know who the actual person with the firearm is. It could be the janitor. It could be the principal. It could be the instructor. It could be the gym teacher. You don't know. That removes some of the predictability or capability of the actual shooter to neutralize the actual defense of the children. The other thing, firearms that are protecting a lot of our valuable resources, we should protect children with them too. And we should do that in a manner that doesn't make our schools look like militarized zones. That's possible to do. There's booths that have been made. You know, you guys have some of that like across the pond where there's one police officer with a bunch of cameras in like, like a booth. Hmm. We can create that in our schools, okay? Um, teaching staff and the administration can work together on this. There's budgets are there. We just spent 40 billion, sent 40 billion dollars to the Ukraine. This is a holistic approach as well as overwhelmingly a lot of these young shooters feel disenfranchised. We have to factor in that disenfranchisement escalating over the last two years in the connection between suicides and domestic violence with all of these government lockdowns have to factor that in. You can't say that suicides were up however much percent over the last two years. Domestic violence is up over however much over the last two years. And think that that is completely separate from um, the lockdowns and small businesses being closed and outlets for young people to go express themselves and things of that nature. This is that part is where it starts to become cultural. So when someone says 
the gun is the only thing that's going to be removed. Mm-hmm. We got to go again. I got to look at, you know, our, our brothers and sisters across the pond. You guys, it's like damn near overnight after you guys started limiting the access of firearms ownership by private citizens. You now, you guys are now saying we need more knife control because hmm. stabbings are going through the roof. Same thing in Australia. And I, I hate to sound cliche because cliches can look like it's just a talking point, but some of those cliches actually make sense, you know? And one of that being evil attempts to find a way. You got the guy over in um, France a few years back that mowed down 86 people. Mm-hmm with a vehicle, with a van. And I'm not saying it as a whataboutism. I'm saying it as a, a, a fact that if, if we're having a good faith-based conversation, and I'm very clear that I want the trauma to stop. I'm very clear about that. Our work supports that. I'm not saying it as a whataboutism. I'm saying it as there's a way to solve these things from a more holistic approach to stop it while still respecting the individual's rights to, de- to human defense. I think that robust, well-rounded, objective, data-driven, empathy-supported position is better than just saying, we just need to get rid of the guns, when every time that those mass shooters are generally, or the vast majority of the times that they're stopped, even if they take the person's life, it's usually they're stopped by someone with a firearm. Yeah. And so I don't know... This is the this collection of answers is the overall answer. What I don't know is if the people that espouse anti-gun views are open to this holistic approach. I don't know if I can be fully confident in their willingness to say, here's the data. Here's the issues that we're having. Let's change some of these young people's diets. Let's get civics back in, in the schools. Let's instead of sending money in other places. Let's let's let the local communities put some more money back into school and the arts and and trades and give these young people a purpose. We cannot separate that. I do not believe fully that people that make this argument are willing to actually listen over their political position that is in contradiction to the founding documents and framework of this nation. I just don't have much confidence that they're willing to actually apply a holistic approach. The thing I like about that response you've just given there, which is very, very useful for understanding this problem in the United States, is is that you have brought in social factors, cultural factors, drug abuse factors, you know, the broader problems in society that may contribute to mass shootings, which, as you right. say, it's very important that we we in the UK understand that the definition of a mass shooting in the US is four or more seemingly unrelated people being shot uh, in that kind of event. And I think one of the problems with the anti-gun the, the gun fetishists, the people who see the gun as almost an evil object, as the cause of the problems in a place like uh, Rob Elementary, is that they avoid the social questions. They avoid right. the, uh, the cultural questions and they go straight for the actual object that was used, which seems to me to be such an avoidance of what's really going on or, or problems that need to be tackled. So on that issue of guns themselves, which do get treated as these incredibly evil objects, you know, as if they have a power within themselves to corrupt people, to drive people mad, to make people do crazy things. Well, of course, it's not the gun that does that. It's it's something else. But in relation to guns, you were a founder of Black Guns Matter. And one of the things that you do, you've just mentioned there that you know, safely owned guns by individuals who know what they're doing. So that's one of the reasons you set up Black Guns Matter, wasn't it? So that people, to educate people about their Second Amendment rights and also about how to own a firearm and how to use a firearm. I think that what happens is we, we don't have long format discussions about this topic. When you talk to most gun owners and most anti-gun people, they're so used to feeling attacked Mm. that they draw this hard line. No one's taking my guns even if they want to, so I have no need for a hard line in regards to what someone says. Until you stack up and get lit the fuck up, you're not, you're, you're not a threat to me. Mm. And so because of that, I have much more of a patient approach 
because the people that I, the, the community that I live in and serve is bombarded by that false narrative. I have to be patient with my people, you know, and when they see that you are genuinely trying to solve this problem while a balanced approach of defending liberties and our human right, because that, that doesn't remove the fact that the government still can have firearms and you can't. That's what this whole thing was about in the first place and yeah. putting the Second Amendment there. So from a nuanced approach in a community that is impacted by this negligence, and then when you show the areas that have the most restrictions have the most violent crime, that person is almost, it's damn near impossible to argue against these facts. Mm. The problem is the lack of long format, good faith conversation makes one side look like they just don't care. Most makes both sides look like they, they don't care about your individual rights and they don't care about your anybody dying. In my lived experience with firearms owners across the country, across the world at this point, they are some of the most meticulous, responsible, law-following people. The problem is when we do that and we're very to ourselves and enjoy the things that we enjoy, someone associates, like you said, associates a firearm with absolute carnage as if that gun is going to get up and float around and just start doing things. Mm. Now, if someone has shot, enjoyed, trained, spent a lot of their life, take gun out, take basketball. If you say to someone that has spent their entire life attempting to get an NBA contract and they love this game of basketball, it's kept them out of trouble, it's helped them get through college. If you say something about basketball, they are going to feel personally attacked because the emotional attachment to the process of being safe, of, of training, of taking care of your body, all of these different things that comes off that way. When you extrapolate that and put it back into the gun owner's context, when you say the thing that helps you relax when you go train, when you work out, when you take care of your family and you take a responsible, uh, you take it serious about being able to be a first responder for yourself and your family, when you start to take first aid training, when you know how responsible you are as a firearm owner, hey, man, I can't go in there because that restaurant in America, that restaurant serves over. They get most of their money, 51 percent or more from alcohol, which means it's a bar, which means I can't go in there with my firearm. Mm. The anti-gun person doesn't understand that this is all of the things that we deal with. We try to, you know, so many states we can't even really travel to unless we say I'm willing to risk my potential personal protection by not taking a firearm. Mm. They, they think that we just willy nilly and it becomes like, yo, you are, you have no participation in this to be qualified to make such a definitive statement on gun owners. Reverse gun owners, because of that same stonewall saying, you guys don't care about my rights and so forth and so on. You haven't taken the time to understand or even ask what is the trauma that is associated with your hardcore stance or fear of firearms? Most of the people that I've gotten to the range that were so-called anti-gun, and I have to say so-called because they weren't really. Most people aren't. At best, you want a monopoly of guns in the hands of the government. At best. And maybe you don't even know that that's what you're asking for. When I have that conversation with them and try to get, why don't you want firearms. With all of this death in my neighborhood, that's a trauma. I don't want to have a conversation about firearms with that person. I want to help that person as a, as a human heal through this. We're not supposed to see this shit. I have the video of the kid killing people in Buffalo at Tops Market. That is highly fucking traumatic. <laughs> and it's not something that our psyche as humans, as babies growing into adults, that's not supposed to be in our psyche. So from me asking and understanding that I've had to, my friend was shot in the head. I had to hold his brain from leaking out of his head. There is a form of post-traumatic stress disorder that goes along with that. We've associated PTSD just with soldiers in, you know, fighting wars, but trauma and your combat is your combat. So we are 
doing ourselves a disservice by not at least attempting to try to figure out, does this person have trauma and where does it come from? And then we don't have to have a conversation about firearms. I have anti-gun friends that when I go into their home, I let them know, hey, man, I'm making a decision to respect your private property. I'm a libertarian. If you don't want a firearm in your house, I will not bring my firearm in your house. I want to at least let you see how I secure my firearm in the vault that's in my truck. Because if I'm not responsible and someone sees me leaving a firearm in the glove compartment and they break into my car and take a firearm, that's on me. But I want that person to see how responsible of the firearms I have a mounted into my center console, a vault with a, with a safe on it, right? You, you, you'd have to get in there with a crowbar for about a half hour to get that out. I need them to see that. I need to see also that I'm empathetic about their thing. Maybe they don't want to be around firearms because they're nervous. And overwhelmingly, over time, I might sometimes just have a, this happened to me. I'll have a magazine and I'll go, oh man, bro, I know you don't like guns, but I, I got to go back to the car because I, I brought a magazine in your house. And they're like, yo, it's just a magazine. It's not the gun though, right? I'm like, yeah. And that sparks so much of a conversation. When someone understands that you are trying to understand them and it's not a partisan you're an idiot because you view certain things. You haven't even figured out why they view it that way. And how we've been successful at Black Guns Matter is, it's like, yo, if you anti-gun, come to the class. Take a Stop the Bleed class that we have. You might not be around guns, but you may learn something from Black Guns Matter at one of our events where we're teaching people how to stop the bleed. It may not even be firearms related. Somebody may have an accident or cut their hand with a knife and you know how to stop that wound and that person from bleeding out. We care about saving life. Mm. When we stop being super partisan, and I'm not saying just give room to the other side just because, I'm saying when we can generally lead in, anti-gun and pro-gun, generally lead in with, what is the trauma? What, wh why do you view this, this thing this way? Can I, are you open to me sharing information with you about my perspective? And if I'm somewhere improper, will you give me right information to put that wrong right? Doing that, it's not adversarial. However, there are people that are from the top down that want adversarial mm -hmm. natures. They want people doing this. They are not interested. And in my experience, that is most of the anti-gun movements. You can't look at the face of all of this information from a loving empathetic community member. That's what I am. You can't look at all of this information that is easily verifiable. I'm not making it up. You can't look at that and then go, well, yeah, still no guns. Mm. You can, mm. but you can say that for you. At the moment where you start to do that towards me, you're crossing a line. No amount of emotional reaction or yelling or screaming changes the fact that we can view this differently, and I still have a human right, not granted by government, to defend life, to defend your life if some psychopath wants to try to take that life. And I think that that's where it just becomes different, and I, sent, I tend to lean more right because it's like, bruh, I, can, I can't speak for those yelling at you and pro-gun people. I can speak to our approach and what I do backed by empathy, facts and us applying and getting to the solution together. And if you're still pushing back against that, then it's, it's, it's really clear to me that you're not really interested in a solution. You're interested in your narrative being yeah. the only narrative. And that's just not fair. I think the way you talk there about responsible gun owners and one of your missions is to create responsible gun owners, people who know their rights when it comes to owning a gun, but also know um, what their responsibilities are, where they can go, right. how to use it, how to how to be a part of their community. And, and that's really interesting to hear because one of the prejudices we hear about what's called gun culture in the United States is this idea that guns are only something that rednecks and 
uh, urban criminals are interested in. This is this is the impression we get from outside of the United States. You know, who would want a gun apart from some um, y- you know millenarian crazy guy in in America or the criminals who sell drugs? And so it's interesting to hear a very different perspective on who own guns and and what they do. And as part of that, I wanted to ask you about the Second Amendment because. We don't have a Second Amendment in the UK. We are not allowed to own guns. The last time, the only time, in fact, I've ever held a gun was at a shooting range in Las Vegas a few years ago. And we have the situation that you just mentioned there in passing, which is that gun ownership is monopolized by the state. So they right. have a monopoly on, uh, pretty much a monopoly on guns and a monopoly on the the right to use violence in certain situations, which has always struck me as very regressive and very problematic. So for you, what's in, what is important about the Second Amendment and how would you convince some people in the UK and in Europe who think the Second Amendment is the craziest idea human beings have ever had? Look at, look at the lockdowns. They're pretty much told the world what to do and with no data to back it up with no like oh i get it in the beginning oh my god what is this i get being afraid but fear doesn't justify violating uh, violating other people's human rights rights to movement rights rights to run their business so forth and so on right a government has never been the friend of the people it's not designed to be that way limited government like a monarchy is like yo you guys do what the fuck i say like that's it and if you don't want that you have to have the means to stop the government or a person from attempting to force you to do something i understand if you're not looking at it from a conversation or a standpoint of violence if you think that knife violence is different than gun violence then i understand because you go well a gun but again this dude ran over 86 people with a van. Imagine if someone was there with one gun to shoot him. Pow. Maybe he saved 20 lives, 30 lives. My point is the Second Amendment is for the people to maintain the right to defend their own property. The average response time of police in, in America is 11 minutes. If the rapist is there, even if he breaks into your house, breaks into a woman's house or a guy's house and wants to rape a guy, whoever, I don't need the, to wait 11, like I, you can be raped in 11 minutes. And that's the average response time. And the reality is the Second Amendment is about not outsourcing your protection to the government. When government becomes end all be all, you have to do what we say. So the people that are saying, you know, over there in London and places, if they're like, yo, well, why would you need a gun? Why would you X, Y, and Z? I would ask them, why do you trust? I mean, I didn't know that you guys trusted your government so much here. Like, do you genuinely think that you're like, there's a comedian that made a joke and he was like, so you don't believe in, he's like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I believe in a few conspiracy theories. And when someone says they don't believe in any, he's like, wow, that's a strong stance to take. It's like, so you think that the government is just out here just telling us the truth all the time. So if you are anti-gun and you trust that the government has your best interest and you really believe that, I would ask them what has happened in their lives that has given them that understanding where government will not be corrupt. Listen, Hitler was elected democratically. Everything that he did was like lawful, like like under that regime. Now, it might not have been lawful based on human rights in the Geneva Convention and so forth and so on. You know, but when black people in America were murdered and lynched, that was sanctioned and sponsored by the state. The government, the first federal gun grab was the Wounded Knee Massacre where hundreds of Lakota indigenous people were murdered during a federal gun grab. That is the government. If it was not for the government sanctioning bigotry, racism would just be voluntary association. But the government said, hey, okay, you can do this to the black people. So 
in different parts of the globe. You know, take India. The British crown said you can do this to these Indian people. Mm-hmm. So they, they didn't have the means to defend against that. And every time tyranny has been overturned, along with some violent things that have happened in the name of justice or in people pretending to be in the name of justice, right? So we can't sugarcoat it. But when tyranny has been overturned, it's because of firepower. That's a technology. So I would ask that person that has that position, how did you get so trustworthy of government? It's like either you trust the government or you don't pay attention to world history. How are you here? Yeah. And if you ask a person that that question that way, generally they'll go, well, I I don't trust the government like that. Okay, so why do you want them to be the only ones that have the means of a monopoly on violence? And I'm not saying violence in the sense of just go outside and be reckless. Mm -hmm. I'm saying if I want to grow, you know, a lot of states in America, it's a federal offense to collect rainwater. If I start to collect buckets and buckets of rainwater, the federal authorities can come and just either put me in jail or like, toss over my buckets of rainwater because you want me to go through this system to collect, to get water. There is no law that is small enough that the foot soldiers of the state will not potentially come fucking murder you for. And that translates over into London. So I don't know how they would get land at that place. I, I, I get that the trauma and the ignorance associated with firearms ownership and how it's, packaged and presented to anti-gun people to make them like, oh, it's the white supremacist and it's the clearly the bad guys. I understand how they could fall victim to that ignorance, but ignorance is not the fact of the matter. So I would just kind of like explain it to them that way and then have them say to me why they believe that. And usually those people don't train so they don't ever see themselves as the person with the gun defending life. They see themselves as the person with the firearm pointed at them. So it's, it's, it's a psychological thing there. And I would love to unpack that with people that are willing to have that nuanced conversation. You mentioned that things that have been done historically to the black community in the United States, to the native American community. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, because I think you've made some really important points on this over the past few years is about the racism that lies behind a lot of gun control measures. Because one of the, another argument I hear from people here in the UK is that the availability of guns is what contributes to racism in the United States. So mm. around the, uh, the George Floyd killing, obviously he wasn't uh, killed with a gun, but around that period, we, there was a piece in the Guardian newspaper over here saying there will always be violent racism in America as long as guns are available. But isn't it isn't it the opposite the case in 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 many ways and and numerous gun control measures right from the aftermath of the Nat Turner uh, slave revolt through to the Black Panther clampdowns of the nineteen sixties a lot of the uh, efforts to control gun ownership were driven by a racist ideology right absolutely was all gun control is racist and I and I share that not just because it's a cool T shirt that we sell. It's factual. The black codes, the slave codes, literally after emancipation, okay, black people have you full citizenship, but hold up. Then they started doing like prohibiting pricing out black people. I posted about that a few days ago on my Instagram page. It is racist. The origin of it, the expansion of it, just because you can rebrand doesn't mean that the intended outcome and the agenda of the thing isn't the same thing. Like if you put Doritos in a healthy bag, the MSG and sodium levels are the same. You just got a really cool like Whole Foods bag. (laughs) It doesn't change what it actually is. And then when people say, well, white people have to go through the same process of purchasing a firearm, that doesn't change it either. If If I was a weirdo that said, I'm going to rape black men, Rape is wrong. And I just start raping black men. And then somebody, one of my other rapist friends says, hey, man, you might be being kind of racist because you're only raping black dudes. And then I say, well, you know what? I'm going to start raping white dudes, too. The concept is wrong. It doesn't matter that mm-hmm. you now have included other people in it. Yeah. 
And the rule is rape is illegal. The founding documents is the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So all of these other extra measures that are rooted in racism, literally, literally, this is easily verifiable. Just because now other groups of people are like conditioned to the thing that started to stop black people from uh, impacting, you know, having the means to defend themselves. And even now, certain areas where there is the most gun control is where the most black people are. So if you're in the same state of California, if you apply to get your license to carry in Orange County, where it's wealthy and white, you'll probably more than likely get it. It's a state issued ID. If you apply to get your license to carry in Compton, South Central, something like that, you're not you're going to get denied. That's where most of the black and brown people are. Mm -hmm. So we're still seeing the outcome of this practice just because they rebranded. And it's like, oh, no, that's not what we meant. Michelle Alexander wrote a great book called The New Jim Crow, where she discusses racism and how it has morphed in the prison industrial complex. The book is about the prison industrial complex. But to be able to utilize, oh, we're only doing this to this group of people because they were criminals. But if you concentrate on a community and make that everything criminal in that community, then you over-police it. You're, 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 it's the Hegelian dialect. You're creating the problem and then asking government that has a racist connotation or outright racist to present the solution. So it has a racial, it is racist. Mm -hmm. It is the only reason for it existing. Before, uh, you know, during captivity, during the black codes, during the slave codes, everybody should read Negroes in the Gun by Nicholas Johnson. Excellent book. That you should read uh, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. You should read about the deacons for defense. This goes from colonial America in history all the way up to the 60s and some new books for even now. So it absolutely is. But the problem is, you know, people that I, and, and I, I have to in good faith say that I believe that they mean well. They are not doing enough study. They're listening to one side of the argument. And that side is the same side that wants control and power that starts in a, a black demographic, but now wants to inculcate you in that. That's what government does. Government is a mafia running a protection racket. And the mafia cannot have the people that they would be extorting to have the means to defend themselves from that force. And that's just what it is. And I challenge anyone that, that disagrees with that, have data, statistics, and historical, verifiable, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, times in history where that is proven. And so I just pray, meditate, and hope that everyone is hearing this with the same empathetic ear that I'm sharing it. Your government, whether that's London, whether that, I don't care, America, Asia, governments are lying to you. And they're trying to make America because we do have other issues that are factors that lead into violence. We are not going to pretend that that's not the case. But instead of getting those eight things, they're lying about the one thing that doesn't really solve the problem while still not highlighting their own racist policies. And they're outside of just racism, their classism, as well as their over uh want for more and more power, wrestling power away from the hands of the people into, uh, you know, political elite. And that's just that's just not OK in any way, shape or form by any stretch of the imagination. So do you think one of the things that needs to be done is is really to overhaul the narrative about guns? Because you mentioned there are some great books that have been written about the role that weapons have played or the right to be armed has played in terms of assisting in liberation uh, from the slave era through to the modern era. You know, guns were a great accompaniment to those who wanted to liberate themselves from repressive structures, from repressive laws. Uh, you know, we seem to have come a long way from when Frederick Douglass said that what people need is a good revolver, a steady hand and a determination to shoot down any man attempting to kidnap you. And, you know, there's the Harriet Tubman figure as well, who was immortalized in film recently. And the role that guns played in those revolts, which expanded liberty in America to such an extraordinary degree. So right. is there a necessity to overhaul the narrative of guns and, and to make the case that these, 
in and of themselves, they're just a weapon. It's just an object. But how we understand them and the role they play in, in expanding people's rights, that's quite important. Absolutely. I did a speech at CPAC uh, a few years back. GOP or the right in America. I'm a libertarian, mm. but I, I have a lot of Republican or right-leaning friends, independents, whatever. The conservative movement in America has failed to do to utilize folks like Ida B. Wells, like Harriet Tubman, like Frederick Douglass, where they're top level Hall of Fame, top tier freedom fighters. Yeah. Um, because there's a form of you don't want to acknowledge the fact that black people were responsible for exposing a lot of the racism that did exist in our nation. So it's easier if you highlight Frederick Douglass and the, the quotes and the stories and the information and the sheer will of and determination that he had for liberation. You ha and you have then you have to look at, well, he was a Republican. He was more right leaning. Then you have to look at, well, damn, why isn't the Republican Party promoting this, these ideologies similarly? Then if you do that, you look at how much the duopoly are the same wings, you know, two wings on the same bird. Then you got a now you got a fundraising problem because people will go, OK, if both of these wings are doing the same, you know, so-called progressive hands in the power of the state conversation. Now they'd have to do some self-reflecting. Hmm. Most people and organizations and political sides do not want to do self-reflection. So the narrative that I gave at that CPAC speech was here's how Frederick Douglass is great. Here's what he did. And you guys don't even know who he is outside of that picture with him and with his hair out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that rebranding is why we were successful at Black Guns Matter. Guns are a tool, like a chainsaw, like a fork, like a cone, like they're a tool with an intended purpose. The intended purpose of a safe and responsible firearms owner is to protect life. That is a last resort. But we're also going to add in conflict resolution, de-escalation, stop the bleed, so forth and so on. Yoga. All of these things that makes a person value the life so much so that they want to avoid having to defend their life. And if they absolutely have to, they have the skill set and the tools to defend life. That's what firearms ownership has always been about. The left has been successful at hiding their racist reason to make that not so, as well as the right has, has failed to engage those communities in that actual branding of what firearms ownership actually means. And again, reasons for that may be political, uh, may be fundraising wise, but it's just still weak. It's weak. So when someone such as myself creates the languaging to engage a demographic in Philadelphia, we got licenses to carry in Philadelphia up 600% in a year, in a year. That's not because people don't want to buy firearms or the 600% of new people are, the, those aren't the people committing the crimes. Mm -hmm. So the brand and the approach, I spoke to someone today from CPAC. They invited me back. I had a great panel the time before last. They dropped the ball and I had been to CPAC for three or four years in a row. They actually were a bit rude to me in their approach and not inviting me again. And the reasons why are still vague, but it just wasn't right. So they invited me this year. And I said, well, I need to have free reign to be able to express how we can actually win, especially since it's going to be in Texas and it's coming up in a couple of months after the Uvalde mm -hmm. shooting. I need time to be on that stage by myself to articulate how we win this argument. Whether Matt Schlapp, who runs the American Conservative Union, will allow to that is a whole nother thing. But the reality is, if we're just focused on, and I'm not saying this is Matt exactly, I want to be clear, but if we're only pandering to the Mar-a-Lago Trump crowd that is so far removed, they're, they're statists. They're not fighting for liberty. They're arguing against the left. That's a different fight. <laughs> so if we're only pandering to that and ignoring the demographic that is the target of leftist propaganda, that absolutely would resonate with our message. But if we're telling even candidates, we've heard people tell candidates, Kimberly Clasic ran for uh, a spot in Baltimore and they, oh, that's an unwinnable district. If, if this is what we're saying to leave this demographic alone completely, these are the same conversations that I was being told when we started Black Guns Matter. I said, let's go to the areas where there's the most violence and the most gun control and get that demographic. Oh man, that's just not a pro-gun place. 
That's why we're going there. <laughs> so the rebrand of liberty, gun ownership, the Second Amendment, uh, libertarian ideology and values, I somewhat can't even call it a rebrand to my demographic. You weren't there to ever brand it in the first place. You know what I'm saying? Being there to present the right knowledge and what it actually is, so the conversation is actually on brand, is what we have to do. Mm. The left or anti-gun people have already effectively rebranded it. But rebranding it doesn't mean that the original, there was anything wrong with the first brand. They just hijacked it. Yeah. They're, very, they're masters of hijacking. They're good. They, they hijacked the word progressive. Yeah. They hijacked the word liberal. Yeah. These classic progressives and classic liberals were about freedom and liberty and limited government and firearms ownership. So, yes, we have to read course correct that definition or that understanding back to the original definition of what this means. And those books that I named are great places for people to start because it speaks to the rich tradition that not limited to, but the rich tradition that African-American people have had with gun ownership uh, in America. And that's how we start to, you know, make sure that those uh, T's are crossed and those I's are dotted. How Woke Won, the new spiked book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It is all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we as ordinary people can fight back. I cannot recommend it enough. Make sure you order your copy now. You can get it on Amazon or go to spiked-online.com slash shop. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. I couldn't agree more about reclaiming those words, uh, liberal, progressive, you know, these used to be positive words, positive ideas. They, they expressed a trust in people and a distrust in officialdom and a desire for more freedom of thought, freedom of speech, freedom of association. And now if I see a progressive or a liberal, I just immediately think they're going to be censorious, they're going to be anti-freedom. So those those words have completely lost their meaning. Uh, just a couple more questions to ask you. Uh, I, I want to ask you about Black Lives Matter, because Black yeah. Guns Matter, which I think is, is such a great name for a campaign, but it's obviously inspired by uh, Black Lives Matter. And I wanted to get your opinion on Black Lives Matter, because there, there are a number of things that strike me about it. I mean, firstly, there are the financial scandals, and you think, you know, who is this organization really working for? But then there's also a, a certain cultural uh, feel about Black Lives Matter, which has always struck me as a bit odd. So for example, the throwing of the hands in the air, um, the slogan, don't shoot, uh, the way in which so many... Um, almost self-loathing white people have involved themselves in this process and are yeah. e we've even seen scenes of them kind of kneeling down and apologizing for the crimes of history and all these rather uh, weird rituals have taken place yeah. around the black lives matter moment so do you think one of the problems with black lives matter is that it's it's almost become a victim identity it encourages black people in the US to see themselves as victims, whereas what you are doing with your organization is encouraging communities to take themselves seriously, to think about the possibility of owning guns and to be responsible citizens from that point of view. That's, that's such a layered viewpoint because the American government should be atoning for, government, state, should be atoning for the systemic policies that they created to price out black people. That happened. Redlining is a thing, you know, but I don't need a white person to feel guilty about that. I need them to understand that that happened and advocate for overturning policies that still exist. I need you to help me repeal the NFA and the Gun Control Act and all of the school cho presenting school choice to our communities. Right. I don't need you to just kneel at me in like this symbolic gesture of whatever. I mean, that might be cool for like like. Hey, if Kim Kardashian wants to make me feel great, I'm, hey, I'm here for it. You know what I'm saying? However, that's not going to change systemic problems. And I think that what we're, some people on the right try to act like is if the government, because they take it, the, they don't want to feel like, yo, I didn't fucking do that. And I understand that. But then it becomes that same level of dismissive. Oh, well, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Black farmers were legitimately maneuvered out of farming in America, black ownership, black business, like this was a, a heist. This happened. 
And we have the data, again, favorite phrase, easily verifiable. Okay? So that's there. We got to contend with the sins of our past as a nation. The not wanting to point the finger at government, which sanctioned all of it. All of it. The people operating through government that had racist ideology practice certain things to economically debilitate black Americans. That should happen. There's a great book called Powernomics by Dr. Claude Anderson. Everyone should read that book. The prison industrial complex. When you're going to a point where we're going to keep a certain amount of prisons, not how much crime is happening, we're going to fill this prison up with people predominantly in the South where there's predominantly more black people in America. Come on, bro. Like you're manufacturing crime to manufacture a justification for exercising a a section of the 13th Amendment. Okay, so that exists. But voting in the same people and financing the same people or political parties or political machines that did it does not fucking solve it. And if I started to be that person and you only and they're like, look, Maj, we're going to give you one hundred million dollars to mislead people. You could buy my T-shirts all day. I'd get the hundred million dollars. Your condition would not get better because I've done nothing effectively with those resources to actually implement change in that community. So the argument of like the ah, that doesn't matter. You're living in the past. That's bullshit because the impact of policy obviously reaches into the future to pretend like you can't get past that with organization and highlighting the incorrect and becoming politically active and stepping away from policies and politicians that are in alignment with that to pretend like you can't do that. That's a victim mentality too. The problem is it takes more thought to be nuanced, to say, here's where we're wrong here on this side. Here's where we're wrong here on this side. This side has a viable solution on this. This side has a viable solution on this. When we let on the right, when we let the social portion of this conversation be led specifically by the left, you're not involved in that conversation. Then you become dismissive. Then the left, the manipulators on the left say to the black community, see, they don't even want to. You just gave. And I think reparations is a serious issue, right? I I differ from some of my people on the right. But you'll say, government will say, well, we can't just print money. Then you'll print up $7 trillion and just give it away. After you just told the black people, nah, we can't do that. And black people in America have a legitimate gripe. Not only did it just start, and we ain't got to go as far back as slavery. We can speed up Jim Crow. We can speed up. So the right could win if we made that conversation our conversation. Where, to tie it back into BLM, they have successfully weaponized and exploited the inability or incapability, or both, of the right to address these social issues. Mm. They're great at it. You can't blame the left for pimping the system if you're not going to fight and, or be there. I have a center in Philadelphia teaching classes, completely voluntary, all voluntary donations, no taxing, No, any of that, no force, firearms, phlebotomy, Tai Chi, yoga, Spanish, welding, conflict resolution, finance. These are things that we're doing with money that people are just giving us in the community. So you can't. And when more and more people are becoming libertarian in Philadelphia, that's going to be because of our engagement about libertarian ideology. But when I say to the people that BLM would target and give them the facts, they are all day like, yeah, I know that black lives matter as a phrase, obviously. But what happened with they're in lockstep when I say, where did, it, did any of the money come to you? The BLM movement has hijacked the money the same way that politicians on the right and left have hijacked all of the COVID relief funds. None of that money made it back to where it was supposed to go. And then you'll say, well, those guys did the wrong thing with the money. Bro, the left and the right politically get very friendly with each other when it's time to launder money. So don't tell me about Patrice, whatever her name is, hiring her brother for a million dollars to do a job when you guys on Capitol Hill do that shit all day, every day. But I'm the pariah to a certain extent because my highest alignment is to the truth. 
is not to any particular party or a side. I'm actually a patriot. I'm actually aware that George Washington said, hey, guys, don't do a two party system. Let's just vote on the actual policy. Then you won't have this stagnant and chaotic fight about this thing until it's time for the money to show up. Then we're going to become agreeing and so forth. And none of that money actually helps the American people. BLM is a monster that America created. Mm -hmm. And don't look to me to lean on and get support of BLM because I see what bullshit they're doing. Also, don't look at me to condemn BLM because you they, they can exist because we on the right haven't solved that problem. We have better ideas. We have the data and the facts on our side. We have the Constitution and the Bill of Rights on our side. Why aren't you engaging in those communities and doing it? You're the same person or the same group saying, well, they got to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Well, you as an American have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and engage in the areas where if you think these people are the liber- the, the, the enemies of America or freedom, you're not going to, to the place that's the target rich environment to make it more difficult for the enemies of liberty to win. So BLM shows up, they get funded, they do what they want. If there's no criminal charges, I can disagree with it morally, but if there's no criminal charges, okay, she bought a mansion. She paid herself out of the stuff. Corporate executives are doing the same thing. All of the top 15 investors in Congress that even though you're not supposed to do insider trading, they have outperformed the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones, you know, for decades because they have insider information. This is America. Don't point the finger at one unless you're going to point the finger at all. What we have to do as a community is go, yo, get some of that money right that y'all said was for us. We got to hold their feet to the fire and say, get that bread up or call them out when it's not. But that has to be equally applied. And when it's not equally applied, we open ourselves up to look very, very contradictory. And that's what BLM is. And that's what some of us on the right are, unfortunately. That's a, a really good answer in terms of the problems with BLM, but also the problems with holding BLM up as the problem for the black community, where it's much more complex than that. And there are many other factors and many other actors contributing to those problems. I think that's really useful. Right. Uh, okay. My last question for you is in relation to freedom of speech. And you talked there about your alignment your alignment is with truth. And of course, in order to have an alignment with truth, we need to have freedom of speech, the ability to express certain ideas, the ability to be out there expressing our truth and our views and our ideologies and and so on. And you said earlier on, and I think this is completely right, that a lot of the Republicans who talk about Frederick Douglass haven't actually read much Frederick Douglass. They know the picture of him, very famous but they haven't necessarily read much. Um, I have read some Frederick Douglass, and one of my favorite pieces of his was after a, a meeting of slave uh, slavery abolitionists in Boston was invaded mm. by slavers who wanted to shut it down. And yeah. Frederick Douglass, in response to that, wrote, a, I think, one of the best things ever written about freedom of speech. It, it was a plea for freedom of speech. It was titled... And he basically said that freedom of speech is the greatest weapon an individual can have if they are fighting for progress, if they are fighting against oppression. And it was it's one of the clearest defenses of freedom of speech uh, a person could read. And so uh, just uh, in relation to that, how central do you think freedom of speech is to the kind of campaigning you do? And, and how much of a problem do you think cancel culture has become in terms of shrinking the ability of people to think in a particular way? Cancel culture has, it, one, it's not really real. Like it's, it's, it's real if you believe in it. It's like the boogeyman. Right. Like, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You could you could like scare yourself like you could really have a heart attack because it's something you told yourself and scare yourself more so than cancel culture. You know, like Kanye West has been canceled. Like how many times? Like it's like now part of his like marketing strategy. Right. The attempt to cancel a person, especially if that person believes in it, is absolutely detrimental to the concept of civil dialogue and really trying to find an understanding. Again, if I really believe that you really want to try to stop the trauma or death in relation to firearms, 
I need to hear your speech. I need to hear what you're saying. I need to hear where you're coming from because you may share a perspective that I didn't even have. And now I can add that. And I'm better equipped to deal with people that think like you and vice versa. If you believe that I genuinely want to help while protecting liberties and have more and more restrictions on the government, if you believe that's what I'm doing, as opposed to believing that I just want death and destruction and people dying, if you believe that, you should actually hear what I'm saying. The current means of how we translate that in the so-called town square, those are the areas where I think the cancel culture becomes very impactful. When the last two years, I languished maybe around 96 to 97,000 followers on Twitter. Mm. And I knew I'm shadow banned. I'm suppressed. There's, there's my Facebook page. It's suppressed. There's no doubt about it. Instagram took two of my other pages for speaking against the COVID regime and all that other stuff. After Elon Musk made the attempt to or said he was going to and found the financing to buy Twitter, I noticed that now I'm at, this was maybe a month or some change ago, I'm now at 109,000 Twitter followers. So somebody turned off the suppression before somebody could check the books. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it looked like to me. Um, the conversation about there may be more bots on Twitter. All of these social media platforms are influenced by, in coercion with, and in cahoots with, and infiltrated by government agencies. It's just what it is. Government agencies love operating through platforms and suppressing speech because them as the government, because of our Bill of Rights, the government can't stop your freedom of speech directly. So they can operate through a Twitter and say, suppress this side of the conversation. Then if you create your own, such as, I don't know, what was that app? Parlor. Parlor. Then government will work with Facebook and Google and Amazon to remove you off of the thing. Hmm. This is not free speech. This is oligarchy, monarchy-esque, authoritarian type of situation, pretending to be democracy, mm. when in reality, democracy is just mob rule. But that speaks to the importance of the ability to express ideas. So freedom of speech is 100% accurate. I think it's our responsibility knowing that these platforms are you know, in cahoots with the state is to come up with and support other alternative means of communication or getting that word out. You should be on Discord. You should be on Gab. You should be on this. Do Be there too. Be on Twitter. Be on Facebook. Even if it's suppressed, the right two people could see it and then it blows out of the frame. Be on all of these platforms. If you get kicked off, make another page. Do it from a different phone. My point in saying this is if the freedom of speech wasn't so critical to sharing messages, they wouldn't work so hard to suppress it. My point is, this is a lesson for us that identifies more center or right of center. The lesson is these people have an agenda. It is not your personal protection. You should be doing it is not your uh, respect for your human rights as codified in the Second Amendment or the Bill of Rights of, uh, of these United States. Or forget that. They don't care about your human rights as stated in the Geneva Convention. They don't care. So you should be doubling and tripling your efforts to speak freely to support platforms that are in alignment with free speech, even if that means there's some racist that's there too. Cool, I get to ignore the racist on this platform. I don't have to like engage them. I can just ignore them. They have their own niche market of racist that they wanna talk to. Great, talk to those guys. Mm -hmm. I'm not listening to you. I know how to turn the page if it's a page that I don't wanna listen to. You know, and so don't be soft. Freedom is expensive and dangerous. Safety is cheap. Prisons, there's no, there's no safety. There's no freedom in prisons, and they're very safe. You know, I want the freedom. When Every time I get on an airplane, taking airplanes are not safe. I mean, we mitigate the risk, but in reality, you're 30,000 feet in the air in a metal tube going four or 500 miles per hour with highly flammable jet fuel right under you. That is not safe. We make a decision mm -hmm. to participate in things that technology expands and makes our lives a little bit more productive. 
But that does not necessarily mean it's the safest thing. Freedom is freedom. And I think that the freedom of speech is something that we may be ruffling feathers, but similar to, you know, what Frederick Douglass said, it's a critical component of us fighting against tyranny, repression, oppression, and authoritarianism. And if you just want to live in a space that I will have nothing and I will be grateful for it, that you can, if they let you in, you can move into the, you know, uh, communist CCP, China. You can move to places that are more in a lot that you have that freedom too. Mm. If you don't think people should talk about certain things, you know, Canada, Trudeau is about to like push for this ban of firearms pretty much in Canada. Hey, bro, if you think that's the place that you want to live and you want to be safer there, you want big daddy government to pat you on the back and take care of everything for you. And you're okay with 11, 12, 20 minute responses. If you're okay and you think that's safer for you, you want to live in a place that has universal health care and a universal income, there are places on this planet that you can matriculate to that will support your not want of freedom of speech. Please go there. I, and I'm not saying that in a disrespectful manner. That's like, because I'm not the one of those go back to Africa type of people, because it's like, bro, I was fucking born here. So what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so I'm just saying, Instead of arguing against the things that you don't like, arguing against my right to say I have a right to keep and bear arms, I have a right to share my view on the importance of personal protection, I have my right to express and, and speak about uh, me wanting limited government. If you don't want to hear that, unfollow me, don't listen to me, turn the t t television off, turn off this you know, audio cast, Go to a place that is in alignment with your value system. That is your freedom, too. And I will respect it. Where you lose me is when you disagree with me. And instead of just saying, hey, I disagree in parting ways on that. Instead of me living and letting me do my thing. Now you advocate and then attempt to violate my right to do a thing. Now we got a problem. So I think it's cr a critical component. We on the right have to push back more and support those platforms that are doing it and uh, and respect other people's rights that don't want to do it as well. Marge, thank you very much indeed. For sure. Thank you, my brother. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.